Right, I think we are ready to start um, on the webinar. So first of all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all participants, wherever they may be in the world, and welcome to everyone to this event, COVID-19 and its impact on gender, justice and security. An event that's hosted by the Gender, Justice and Security Hub and Collaborative International Research Project located within the Centre for Women, Peace and Security at the London School of Economics. I'm Christine Schenken. I'm the principal investigator on this Gender, Justice and Security Hub and a professorial research fellow in the Centre for Women, Women, Peace and Security. Right, the event today is the opening event of a week-long convention for Hub members that will be looking at methods, creativity and innovation. Now, we would, of course, have preferred to have held the convention in person in one of our focus countries. But of course, the pandemic is making that impossible. But one of the advantages of hosting an event online instead of on in person is means that we can ask a wider audience to participate. And this is indeed one of the few convention events which is open to a wider audience. And we're extremely pleased to have you all here. And thank you for joining us. In just a moment, I'll introduce the speakers in today's panel. But before then, I'd just like to say a little more about the Hub. The Hub is funded by the UKRI Global Challenges Research Fund, and it works with academics, local and global civil society, practitioners, governments, and international organization to advance gender justice and inclusive peace. It's working through 32 Hub research projects that are engaging with um, major global challenges in three areas. The Sustainable Development Goal, SDG goal number five on gender equality, SDG 16 on peace, justice and strong institutions, and the implementation of the United Nations Security Council agenda on women, peace and security. The research projects work across and beyond seven conflict, conflict area, conflict affected focus countries around the globe. And then turning specifically to today's event, we are going to be discussing the impacts of the COVID-19 crisis on gender justice and security. As we all know, the outbreak of the pandemic has simultaneously revealed both the fragility and the robustness of health, education, economic, security, political and social systems. We've seen no shortage of exceptional responses to the pandemic. We've seen physical lockdown of millions of people, mandates to return millions of people from cities to rural communities, restrictions on freedom of expression, for example, challenging government management or mismanagement of the crisis data tracking on the movement of peoples, extensive border controls, massive vaccination programs. And this um, amounts to a broad range of political and legal controls that are far reaching across all levels of public and private life. And also of course have far reaching gendered implications. But also responses have included remarkable initiatives at the community level often led by women, and to provide care where state services have failed and to maintain some momentum for for progressive policy agendas. So our speakers are well qualified to talk about these various matters, 
They are three co-directors from the Hub who in, their pan in the panel today will be taking stock of the changing social and political landscapes locally, regionally and internationally one year into the pandemic. They will discuss how responses to COVID-19 have affected the fight for gender justice and inclusive security and the impacts of the crisis on political and social rights. We'll also explore changing configurations of civil, public and private spaces and whether the crisis brought about by the pandemic can indeed also offer opportunities for positive change. So our three highly qualified speakers are in the order in which they're going to be presenting. First, Dr. Josephine Ahiri, co-director of the Livelihood, Land and Rights Research Stream of the Hub and Principal of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Makerere University in Uganda. Josephine's research focuses on improving the understanding of gender relations of post-war conflict associated with land acquisition in Northern Uganda. Now, Josephine will be followed by Dr. Camilo Sanchez, co-director also of the Livelihood Land and Rights Research Stream and Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. Camilo's research focuses on justice in post-conflict scenarios, land governance and peace building, and the role of international human rights law in the Colombian transitional justice process. And then our last speaker is Professor Fanola Nieloin, co-director of the Transformation and Empowerment Research Stream on the Hub and United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism. Canola has published extensively on issues of gender, conflict regulation, transitional justice, and counter-terrorism. Each of the speakers will speak for about 10 minutes. Then we will have time for them to comment on each other's presentations, raise any other particular issues in a sort of interactive conversation between themselves. And then we will turn to the audience for questions and answers. So please, while you are listening to people, um, our use the question and answer function to leave any questions you may have for the speakers throughout the event. Um, obviously, it's an advantage if you can keep the question short, include your name and affiliation, and then we will put those during to the speakers during the question and answer is in the second half of the event. The event will finish at 3.30. It will be recorded and posted online after the event, subject, of course, to any technical difficulties. So that's enough from me at the moment. So I will first hand over to you, Josephine. And thank you all very much for coming today. Thank you very much, uh, Chair, uh, Christine. Good morning, good evening, if you are this side. Uh, I would like to talk about the COVID uh, pandemic and gender justice entitled in the name of COVID. For those who have been baptized, you know what that means. Um, in the name of means that you actually become that identity. And I would like to uh, share thoughts about this. So in a way, the pandemic has hit the world in unprecedented ways. It has taken humanity by storm everybody's hurting, those who are sick, those who are looking after the sick. There's extreme fear, but also uh, we are looking at the gender subtext of this kind of um, situation. 
uh, in Uganda today, uh, as of uh, 20th uh, January, the total cases uh, of COVID uh, were 38,628 uh, with um, 300 or so deaths and uh, 13,000 recoveries. Uh, so the picture is um, not so gloomy, but the issue also is that uh, there could be underreporting uh, because most people are not able to actually do the testing. Uh, the cost is pre prohibitive. And so uh, it's not uh, clear uh, that uh, that is the, 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 the situation. But that is the recorded one. And also there is uh, a narrative around the fact that perhaps the numbers are exaggerated uh, to get uh, donor attention. There, there's a whole uh, discussion around the loans that have been uh, taken in the name of COVID by government um, to the tune of 808 uh, million US dollars uh, as, as loans and then 4.2 as grants. And the, the, the issue is that uh, people don't see the relationship between what uh, is being uh, done on the ground in terms of the health care system, in terms of provisioning of water and so on. And then particularly the response um, has been uh, in addition to what the chair talked about, the lockdown and all that, the enforcing has been a, a more uh, militarism than actually um, generative. And so the, the, the militarism has sort of legitimized or re-legitimized uh, oppression and it has sort of shrunk um, the, the, the civic space. Uh, and, and in there also, uh, the, the, there is uh, the gender subtext that we would like to talk about. And so um, it has had, COVID-19 has had a multiple kind of um, uh, impact uh, politically, socially, economically, bringing out all the inherent uh, deficits in those areas and therefore um, almost um, threatening to roll back even the few gains uh, that a country like Uganda had made. And so are we um, getting the clear picture of the iceberg? How do we get the full view? Uh, akin to the uh, Titanic experience. Um, and within this, the turn to the household is a very clear kind of um, response. So the executive orders were about stay home, uh, save lives. And so this unprecedented movement to the public, to the private, um, once again, uh, we can say that modernity has been put to test in terms of the huge movement of people uh, into the private sphere, especially uh, men in this context, men who, even if they are not employed, they sort of identify with the, with the public and, and are sort of defined in that way. And so the family 
uh, taken for granted as universal, as a heaven for uh, love and unity, all of a sudden is reconfigured. And the household all of a sudden is turned into a hub of violence. In the three months um, uh, uh, of, of lockdown between March and um, June, over 3,000 cases were reported. And reporting actually means that there are more cases that go unreported. So in a way, the pandemic has reconfigured uh, the household. And the, the way we, we see this is that there are the old deficiencies that have been unearthed by COVID-19. Um, we see, for example, the, the congestion of, of health facilities, meaning that all other patients were either um, discharged or uh, told to, to remain home because of COVID-19. It was as if all other illnesses had given way to COVID-19. And in this case, we see a gender subtext of the increased morbidity uh, within the households, as well as the burden of care uh, that actually increases now with children out of school, they are all home, uh, men all home, and the, the, the kind of um, um, division of labor within the home that puts a lot of uh, um, care burden on uh, the females. Then biology cause. There was a dire picture of pregnant women who could not prove that they were in labor. Uh, for people to move, they had to prove that they were seriously sick, that they were dying, uh, and this was uh, given uh, the, the permission was given by the, the security uh, sector uh, in the district. And so a woman had to prove that she was in labor. A, a, a typically kind of masculine view of, of maternal health. And so we had mothers delivering on roadsides or even unattended to in the facilities, uh, especially in the rural areas. And also... Uh, as I've said uh, before, then homes were represented as prisons and men uh, staying home was uh, presented as an unbailable uh, jail sentence. And once again, then we see um, the, the, the institution of marriage uh, coming to the fore and there was a lot of, of discussion on social media uh, on, in terms of what men uh, were suffering, men were undergoing stress, women were stressing them, women were just uh, checking their phones all the time, the phone became the battleground, all these things. And in the name of COVID and the, the, the what is called the standard operating procedures, there seems to be a, a, a reversal in social justice generally, the, the legitimacy for social justice. The population seems to be under siege and gender justice uh, has always been a secondary issue, but now it actually is receding to the real uh, backwaters uh, because there is uh, no space uh, for voicing 
uh, some of these uh, rights issues and so on. Rights have become secondary. What is uh, forefronted is we have to uh, conform to the SOPs, COVID-19 SOPs. And the expectations that, that civil society had, that people had, that there would be better investment in the healthcare system, in water, in proper policies, in gender equitable strategies, all that doesn't seem to be uh, happening. And there is more uh, investment actually in the, in the kind of um, repressive machinery uh, and, and also um, more uh, less investment actually in the um, health, even basic things like uh, protective gear uh, for health workers, uh, things that uh, seem to be very uh, obvious in terms of the, the pandemic uh, offering that opportunity to actually reverse the, the kind of investment. Uh, instead, what is abundant is violence, uh, corruption, increased morbidity um, at household level, extreme commercialization of healthcare, um, a facility that used to charge uh, maybe $100 or maybe $50 is now talking about um, $15,000, uh, $2,000, um, a single treatment of COVID um, range uh, came uh, when the, the government had started earlier it was really a free treatment for a few people uh, when there were still five cases, 10. Now that there are over uh, 30,000, uh, the, the, the cost has actually uh, gone up um, as high as $5,000. And the fear that COVID is real is not actually translating into positive response. So the, 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 the kind of uh, response is just about uh, um, getting what uh, the leaders would like to see. And, and we see therefore that gender justice in the post COVID era, we will need a re-engineering approach because there are all these rollbacks that have happened. However, there's this newness that we need to um, put on, on the table. There has been opportunities. It has opened this black box to question uh, the hegemonic beliefs upon which harmful forms, for example, of, of masculinities are constructed. We see uh, permissive moments through which to re-engineer or the unlearning of, of, of men and what crowds them out of the household because then men actually became socially dislocated. And there was this conversation about there is actually need for us to, for example, enjoy the home, enjoy being father uh, and so on. And that revealed new experiences also, a number of men uh, on of fatherhood and the need for fatherhood of presence as opposed to fatherhood of absence, the, the, the sort of continued absence. I would like to thank you very much um, for your attention. Thank you very much, Josephine, for that extremely uh, vivid, and I very much liked the image of the iceberg. Um, I quite agree. I think we're only seeing very much the tip of the repercussions that are going to be going on for a very long time. And now for a very different part of the world, Camila, I'll turn to you. 
Thank you very much, Christine, and all the folks that have worked uh, so hard to put uh, this convention together. I, I look forward to all, all of the panels. I, I think they're going to be extremely interesting and useful for the times that we're living in. So um, I was called to, to talk about um, Latin America and how the pandemic has hit uh, our region. And this is not a, a full comprehensive paper. What I wanted to present is some ideas uh, just to trigger the discussion. So I, I didn't prepare uh, the iceberg uh, presentation, but uh, as I only have 10 minutes, what I thought I could do is to use the logic of the meme, uh, the idea of how it started, how it is going, uh, and maybe add uh, where to go from here uh, to present um, how, how I see regionally uh, some of the challenges, but also some of, of, of the hopes, because as, as Josephine put it, I think there, there are also opportunities. Uh, so first, how it started. Um, the pandemic hit, um, when the pandemic hit, interrupted a simmering period of discontent in the region, in which citizens, thousands of citizens, if not millions, had turned to the streets um, in mass protests to demand changes uh, to many different issues, but I would um, classify it into two groups. First, um, to, to combat and ask for changes for pockets of authoritarianism, authoritarianism uh, although this, the region has made some progress uh, in democratization over the past two or three decades. Uh, there still are uh, many issues in which uh, one could see a lack of, of, of democratic process in which decisions are, are made in different countries. So some examples, um, uh, the, the constitution in Chile uh, and, and why so many people are, uh, were asking for um, an amend to that constitution or even a complete uh, redo of the constitution through a conventional assembly. Um, other, the, the lack of compliance of the peace agreement in Colombia and these new policies of, of hardening um, drug policies and, and many other of those policies and even the police response to those protests. We saw um, all of these videos in, um, uh, depicting uh, the violence and, and, and the hardline response of, of police and security uh, forces against uh, peaceful protesters in the region. So there is one of the topics that was uh, at the court of, of of the request and, and uh, of the protesters. And the second I would say is um, more of a social and economic um, uh, matter, uh, the ramping inequality, the lack of opportunities and the lack of recognition of an entire generation. Issues ranging from economic and social inequality, uh, the regressive fiscal systems of the region, um, the environmental degradation and the lack of action on the part of governments on that, uh, the, the expansion of right-wing right um, religious anti-rights ideologies uh, throughout the region. So those are some of the many issues that prompted all of this period of discontent. So when people were mobilizing, um, asking for their rights, asking for changes, uh, the pandemic hit. And, and dial back a little bit of this process, but all of these agendas are still there. And um, how it is going? Uh, 
you've all have seen that um, Latin America has been one of the um, hardest hit uh, regions. Uh, we, in the te top 10 countries, we have Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, Peru, and sometimes our leaders seem to be, you know, in this contest for whom, who makes uh, the most idiotic response or, or remark. Uh, and AMLO in Mexico and Bolsonaro in Brazil, I think uh, are top contenders for, for that uh, award. Um, but also we had early devastation outbreaks like the one that happened in Ecuador uh, when we saw corpses uh, on the streets. And, and so it's been dramatic. Uh, the toll's been dramatic in our region. And <clears throat> this impacted already weakened health systems uh, countries with limited capacity to mobilize resources, emergency resources. You know, you see in other regions in Europe or in the US that now they're discussing this 1.9 billion package and our region doesn't have uh, the leverage or the money to mobilize those sort of, those needed resources as quick as in, in the regions uh, they can. Um, our labor market, labor markets uh, depend heavily on informality, informal jobs. So many people had to risk their lives um, and ventured out their, you know, the, these uh, households and, and the home as, as this heaven, as, as Josephine put it, uh, because they just need to make a living uh, to put food on the table. So there are many uh, issues that made it, uh, not only um, in terms of, of the health health crisis, but the social and economic crisis uh, are very uh, damaging for, for our democracies. And in terms of policy responses, we have had um, many different takes, intended or unintended, but I would say at least three types we have seen. First, uh, full, frontal, full frontal authoritarian responses. Um, and I think uh, the case of El Salvador and, and President Burkelele uh, <coughs> is the best example for, for that. We all saw those pictures of, of those young men uh, in prison, in, in Salvadorian prisons, as, as how you know, um, shocking uh, these measures can be. Um, on the second hand, we have these hybrid responses. Uh, and I would call here Colombia to, to be the example in which there was this over-legalization of the exceptional measures, but more than 300 different degrees, resolutions, and pieces of legislation, you know, that were completely chaotic, and nobody actually knew what, what was happening. And, you know, the, the part of the government tried to, you know, slip under the rug um, some authoritarian measures and, and dial back on some of their commitments. Um, so we had that. And the third is complete lack of action or lack of leadership, as we've seen in Brazil, uh, with Bolsonaro contradicting science and contradicting um, its own courts and, 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 and Mexico and other parts of the region. So it is not just one uh, set of responses, there are different uh, degrees of, of, of that. And when it, when it comes to, to women and gender issues, um, we have seen an, a a very impactful and regressive effect on gender uh, justice and, and gender equality uh, throughout the region. Uh, a, a lot of what Josephine shared, uh, it's also, can, can be also seen in, in our region, in, in Latin America, increase and increase in, in different forms of violence in, against uh, women. 
um, the Colombian General's Attorney, for example, found that the two most commonly reported crimes um, during the lockdowns were burglaries and domestic violence. Uh, second, job destruction in what they call feminized um, sectors, uh, the burden of unpaid care, and also some you know, not well thought uh, policy responses. There was one we called Piqui Placa, which is that this idea that um, there was like a, a gender traffic light in which uh, women would uh, go, could go to a streets on one day and, and men on the other day that were uh, very damaging for uh, certain uh, groups of people, transgender people, and, and, and for many reasons that was not well thought and, and, and produced more damage than, than, than good, I think. And finally, because my time is almost over, uh, where to go from here? Um, social protests and all of these protests, processes are still alive. Uh, they didn't die because of COVID. Uh, they were put to a halt, but um, as um, Argentinian women uh, saved the day and, and they showed us uh, they're still there fighting for their right, which is uh, a great. And I think at least there are three issues in which I, I think that, uh, that some of these people could uh, find um, agendas and, and ideas to mobilize around uh, um, and, and that there is now uh, more consensus on, on them. First is how to develop novel schemes for protection uh, of women uh, facing uh, domestic violence and how to deliver social benefits and food rations to vulnerable families. I think a lot of good ideas have come up with uh, this pandemic. And I think um, uh, there are grounds to, to, to believe that uh, we can ramp up on that and, and make it um, um, more sustainable policies. Second, the push for reforms uh, to our unequal tax systems and, and, and fiscal systems. And the third, um, the implementation of an emergency basic system income system, basic income system, and, and a gender sensitive basic income system. Those are three uh, ideas that uh, have been around and I think uh, they could be important moving forward. And thank you very much. And I think uh, I turn it to Fayanula. Thank you very much, Camilo. Uh, very great deal of information and very well within your 10 minutes. And I think the really important issue that, yeah, existing agendas haven't gone away that when we read the papers too often it seems like nothing in the world is happening except COVID-19 and responses to it but so many of these other agendas are still there are simmering below the surface and we're going to have to be taken into account um, as we move into what we hope will be a post-COVID era. Finola, I turn to you. Great. Thank you, everyone, and thanks in particular to Christine and her team for bringing us all together. And um, so I'm going to speak from the perch. I have both my academic perch, but also given the work that the mandate I hold has been doing globally and seeing the impact of COVID-19, particularly on the protection of civil and political rights around the world, I'm going to speak from there. So as we all know, we, and we've mentioned already, the pandemic has stretched state capacity across the globe. 
Um, as Christine noted, it has simultaneously revealed both the robustness and the fragility of public health, public education, transport, economics, welfare and security systems. And so um, it's clearly in some sense, the pandemic is a classic emergency. It's a crippling event for states threatening many lives. And uh, it has clearly crippled the capacity of many states to function. And as a result, across the globe, um, we've been seeing perhaps a parallel epidemic of legal and political exceptionalism. And I'm gonna share with you all in the, in the chat, um, a tracker, a global tracker that the mandate I hold has been supporting, uh, one created by two small NGOs, ICNL and ECNL, really tracking the impact of the pandemic on some core um, rights, as well as tracking the resort to exceptionality, what we might call emergency powers by states across the world. And so, as we look at those responses, what do we see? Well, we've seen lockdown of millions of people, mandates to return millions of people to cities and uh, from cities to rural communities, in many cases, thereby spreading the effects of health effects of the pandemic, restrictions on freedom of expression that challenge government crisis uh, management, mandatory labor production, huge movements in data tracking on and collection of data on the movements of people, often by non-traditional actors, so health actors rather than traditional security actors, extensive border controls and the application of new technologies on the border, and a broad range of political and legal controls that are far, far ranging and are both wholesale and retail. And all of those measures have gendered effects. And I think it's important to note that one of the challenges we face is understanding both the scale of those measures, but also really sort of burrowing down deep to understand how they are affecting women specifically. What I want to start with is to talk a little bit about the kinds of emergency measures that we're seeing and then talk about what that the sort of securitization of the pandemic and what that means for in particular gender and women's rights. So if we look at the if you look at the uh, tracker, you'll see that uh, formally we have 96 countries that have issued emer emergency declarations. Of those, we know that 50 include measures expressing uh, limiting freedom of expression, 130 that are affecting freedom of assembly, and 53 countries, at least that we know of, with measures that affect privacy. Now, I want to say that I think the tracker underestimates the scale of restriction on civil and political rights. This is what we can ascertain at this point. And one of the difficulties in this context is actually knowing what's happening on the ground. And this is happening, that difficulty or that unknowability of the effect of COVID is really because of the way in which the complexity of the management of COVID is happening. So let me identify four types of emergencies that we see and then talk about how those are affecting a range of rights, including women's rights. The first are classic emergency powers where the government is saying we have a health emergency and we have to limit these kinds of rights at this time. 
And so one really important thing to note, a lot to say about that, is that governments are consistently under-reporting. So even though we have measures of derogation in place from many states, we know that there's a systematic under-reporting of state measures happening, which means that we don't really know what they're doing and our capacity to oversee what they're doing or to measure if their measures are proportionate, necessary, and non-discriminatory, our capacity to measure that is extremely difficult. And um, the second layer of emergency powers, which have been alluded to by Camille, is the resort to um, what we might call uh, excessive um, uh, uh, executive powers. So in many countries, we could think of Brazil, we could think of Hungary, uh, we could think of also the United States, we've seen, in fact, not the parliament functioning to put in place measures through a process of dialogue and deliberation, but rather individual leaders taking power and often security powers to manage the pandemic. And that category of executive powers we could call under cover of COVID, where states are doing things that they could not otherwise do using the pandemic as cover for their actions. Uh, the third layer that we see is what I would call de facto emergencies or de facto exceptionalism in this space, which is where uh, we see a range of security, surveillance um, and rights limiting powers being put in place in places like health law. So all of the lawyers on the call will know when we look for, for exceptionality in legal systems, we don't generally look at health provisions. And so one of the challenges we face is actually figuring out where the exceptionality lies and what the effects are, particularly on marginalized groups, but also on, on, on historically discriminated against groups, including women and girls. So the de facto space is enormous. The fourth area that we're seeing is the area that I work in every day, which is the repurposing of security counterterrorism powers to the pandemic. And we're seeing an enormous amount of that repurposing and re-application. Uh, and I, I think that the, the, the thing I would stress in that area is if we think about counterterrorism or security powers, powers that were developed in the area of, um, of war or insurgency or terror terrorism, right, where women and girls have historically struggled, notwithstanding the women, peace and security agenda, struggle to be visible, struggle to have a voice, struggle to have their issues and their concerns viewed as relevant. When we think of the sort of pa pandemic management leaning into that space, borrowing from that space, we then import all of the limitations of those spaces into the management of the pandemic. And I think we should also be profoundly concerned when we see pandemic management being managed in a way against communities. So we know as an, as an epidemiological matter that the communities who are suffering the most and who are the most vulnerable to COVID-19 are communities of color, communities who have been historically disenfranchised from the state and communities who have had historically weak poor and oppressive relationships with the security sector. So again, we have to think about the consequences of what it means to have the sectors who are leading, whether it's in the repurposing of counterterrorism or from the classic use of emergency powers, mobilizing the security sector of the state to manage the pandemic, what it means to have those actors leading the response of the state to a health pandemic. 
So those are the four areas I, I, I underline. Two other points of note. One is that those are not silos, so that in a number of countries, we're seeing a sort of a complexity of all of those measures being used at once, right? So that we it's, it's a really dense, dense um, area in terms of securitized regulation. And the second is that historically, we have looked at countries from the top down and looked at what the central government is doing to understand what the impact of regulatory measures are. COVID really upends that regulatory scheme because in many countries, the most significant regulatory powers are being exercised at the local, at the city, and at the municipal level. So I take the example from Kenya's home country, I take the example of Bogota, Colombia, and the particular role that the mayor of Bogota has played, actually a very positive role in, in regulating the pandemic, but it's at a city level. And so also I want to say for women's rights activists, for women who are at the forefront of challenging state power, we often think we have to go to the center. And one of the things that we have to think about in this new pandemic regulatory space is to understand that the sites of regulation are, mute, are multiple, that they are mutually reinforcing, and that they are, as a result, really difficult to undo. Um, let me close by saying a little bit about what I think the dangers for the women, peace and security agenda, but more broadly for women are from the militarized and heavily securitized response that we've seen to the pandemic. So first it is that in general, um, these are not women-friendly spaces. They're spaces in which we've struggled to have both women's voices heard and where, in fact, the harms to women have been invisible. And I think that remains through in the COVID uh, response. And um, the second is that there is an innate resistance in these spaces to often seeing what um, Josephine and Camille has decided as the core relationship between public and private, meaning just as, for example, counterterrorism and security measures have, you know, a, as huge costs on family structures and on women and girls, but, but the state is often resistant to acknowledging that. The impact of the way in which COVID is sitting in families and within the most private and intimate spaces and the projection of the state's power into that private space, I think is one that we have not fully grasped as feminist scholars and practitioners and understanding how we unwind that I think is going to be particularly challenging. And the third thing I want to focus on here in terms of effects is the sort of global space and the, the kind of resistance we're seeing to addressing the negative effects of the pandemic at global space. Some of you will be aware um, that it took a very, it was very difficult to get a General Assembly debate on this issue, um, partly because states were resistant to having the conversation and impinging on one another's sovereignty. More significantly, we've seen a really resistance from the Security Council in doing the same. So it is to say that we lack global leadership, not just to understand the kind of rule of law and human rights uh, deficits, but also to name those deficits. And finally, let me close by saying that where do we go next? Well, where we go next, I think, is a need for meaningful global oversight of the resort to exceptionality, securitization, and militarization to manage this pandemic. And without that kind of meaningful global oversight and the political will to enact it, we may wake up the day after the pandemic ends with a health pandemic 
over, but a crisis of governance, human rights, and accountability that we will live with for several decades on our hands. Thank you. Thank you, Finola. That's a sobering thought upon which um, to conclude, but I think a very important one and one that we certainly need to heed. Um, so thank you, all three of you. You've all kept wonderfully to your t allocated time as well. Um, but I'm sure you've all got um, thoughts that have arisen in response to each other. So I wonder whether, um, Josephine or Camila, whether you would like to start by making any responses. I think perhaps one another area that we could focus on in any such responses is you've all talked about the way in which the pandemic has impacted upon women and impacted upon constructions of masculinity and femininity on gender relations, both at the um, very local, within the household, but also at a more community level. Uh, I wonder if any of you think that, that this is a moment where we may actually see um, some long-term reconstructions of femininity and uh, masculinity, um, whether this is going to lead to a rethinking, in fact, of gender relations within societies, or whether, in fact, what we're seeing is, um, I think what we might say is a pushback at the moment, whether, in fact, that is going to be long-term and adverse, um, particularly for the protection of women, women and girls' human rights long-term. But that's just a sort of thought that I'm having. So responses, who'd like to, Camila, would you like to, have you got any immediate responses to your <laughs> colleagues' um, um, present, you know, very powerful presentations? Yeah, no, I, I think they were brilliant. And, and I see a lot of, um, of the same issues that we've been um, witnessing in Latin America, in, in, in Africa, and, and in other regions that have been uh, monitored by, by Fionola's and mandate and, and, and her work. Uh, to, to your question and to, to your idea, Christina, on, on how these policies have impacted uh, women, I would say that right now there are kind of, as I see it, there are kind of two different discussions. Uh, I, I'm speaking here for, for the Colombian experience. One is the idea of the private sphere and how, for example, you know, people have taken it to social media to complain about uh, washing dishes and how much time you spend doing that or taking you know care of of the household and that has triggered a discussion on that that kind of work has been there all around it's just that you're now paying attention because you're home uh, but this it's been there and taken care for by women you know for centuries for ages so how to you know bring those discussions to you know the realm of society and how we can you know, manage to share uh, those responsibilities. So I think there are certain issues, but the underlying thing is that um, the burden of, of, of that, the, the brunt of that has been, you know, um, <laughs> taken by, by women that are, are the ones that, you know, are trying to keep their jo jobs while uh, educating their children and, you know, uh, doing all of the uh, work at home, mostly work at home and, and that's part of, uh, it's brought that to the surface, but it still shows a really, really bad picture of how we are as, as a society. And the second is uh, the public the public sphere. And the, um, how this pandemic has erased 
decades of progress in terms of mm-hmm. you know, women in the job market, in the economy, and how we're going to prepare for uh, and doing that, and how we're going to build back. Uh, and I, I haven't seen you know, policies that are specifically uh, trying to address that issue. You know, uh, and I think that's some, something that is uh, very concerning uh, to many of us. Thank you. Josephine, any sort of immediate reactions or thoughts arising from uh, fellow panellists or further things you would have liked to have uh, raised? Uh, yeah. Uh, one, I think uh, something about um, uh, gender relations at household level, they are sort of in uh, a flux. Uh, we see on the one hand, this adverse effects and the, the increased burden and so on. But the lockdown seems to also have engendered uh, a process of, of renegotiation. Uh, at one point, uh, the, 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 the sphere that was badly hit was the public uh, informal employment. Now, informal employment that is not uh, uh, related to food because food markets were not locked down. And what happens is that women uh, in the informal economy, uh, most of them seem to be in the food-related activities. And therefore, they were able to maintain some form of semblance of sustenance uh, and and bringing food on the table actually. And so we saw a lot of frustration by men uh, about I cannot put food on the table, I cannot be a man because uh, manhood in this sense is only meaningful if you are in the provider role. And so Mm -hmm. all these tensions Uh, all these tensions actually brought about a certain kind of uh, discussion around can men be men without money? And and, and, and perhaps also, we we also saw uh, a few or or some men trying to bring in the narrative that actually you can be a man, you can enjoy fatherhood of presence, uh, you can also be part of of, of the home kind of economy without being an absentee. So I think that depending on how these renegotiations come along, uh, there is a possibility of a renegotiated uh, identities around masculinities and femininities. Uh, that is what uh, uh, we, are, we, are, we are seeing. And the, 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 the discussions in the media, on radio is actually ongoing. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask, um, especially at the UN system level, was that uh, historically we, we had uh, something around the global women's movement. Is this the time to actually actualize, maybe beyond SDGs and so on, to re-sort uh, of imagine a global women's movement that um, sort of captures these moments and, and, and uses them to, to bring uh, a, a kind of conversation that, that can then 
change the way nation states are uh, sort of engaging within the whole um, UN system. It was just a question and I was uh, just wondering uh, how we can engage with that. Thank you. Very important question, I think. Finola, have you got any response to that? Any other further sort of thoughts again arising out of both Josephine and Camilo's really um, helpful and um, very stimulating comments? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think we are in this moment of tremendous flux and it's really interesting for the gender hub where we work on like situations of conflict and transition. We know there's this odd, it's almost a paradox that in times of great harm, in times of great change, where there's enormous difficulty, there's also enormous opportunity. And we know that from sort of those of us who worked on conflict or work on conflict. That said, I think we're facing enormous challenges to really meaningfully translate that into opportunities for women and girls. And um, I think one of the challenges or one of the positives is that if a decade ago we were having a debate about whether health was a human right, I mean, I think we're done with that, right? Because, yeah. you know, we locked down the world for health. So it feels to me like one big moment to capitalize on the losses that Camille has rightly identified is actually this consensus on what things are rights, health as a right, water as a right, a, a, a home, a place to be safe from all of these things, the cures to the pandemics have to be rights. And I think really that moment of, of, uh, of really capitalizing and, and, and affirming these things will be really important to make back the losses that we've seen, certainly seen in the public space for women. To Josephine's question about the system, it, it worries me enormously right now, as you know, one of the challenges for the pandemic is that civil society space, including women-led civil society, is shrinking. And human rights defenders who are women are still being killed every day around the globe, notwithstanding the pandemic. The work they do, uh, uh, the, the issues they work on, which have not gone away and they are still working on, have made them doubly vulnerable because the world's not watching their deaths or their repression simply because it's too busy worrying about survival. So I think that's an enormous challenge. And I think the other challenge is the pandemic, despite Zoom, <laughs> Um, the spaces that were created globally are less accessible, um, partly because of the way in which the pandemic is constricting space. It's constricting the space for discourse, whether that's at the Security Council, the General Assembly, ECOSOC, all of these spaces and, and regional spaces. And so I, I do think that we will have to pay really close attention to the health of women-led civil society and nurture it because in it is really the, 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 the roots of what will um, build back what we have lost, but also reimagine it, right? How do we reimagine some of these things uh, in a post-pandemic world? I think we need to pay a lot of attention, study, promote uh, female leadership and what female leadership has been in the past year compared to toxic masculinity kind of leadership. And if you look, for example, at the president of, or the prime minister in New Zealand, the mayor of Bogota, Angela Merkel, and you compare that to, you know, some of the clowns um, <laughs> in other countries that, uh, to, to put it mildly, um, some, some of these people and, and you, 
you know, compare the kind of responses and where they put the focus, the focus on. And if we can, you know, channel that uh, in order to make it um, a way to, to produce a more inclusive uh, rebuilding of what we lost, uh, I think that's going to be key. Otherwise, uh, I, I'm afraid that, you know, uh, we're going to go to uh, business as usual and all of these policies to, you know, uh, put the economy back on track or many of the other policies are just going to be uh, going to end up leaving behind all of those people that we care about. I think it's really interesting as well that um, all the rights that Fenella was just talking about, you know, health rights, um, clean water, shelter, etc. They are all the classic economic social rights. And for years and years, the covenant economic social rights has been you know, the poor relation. Um, are they really rights? And so on. And the one thing the pandemic has made absolutely clear is the vital role of the state um, as guaranteeing those as rights, as entitlements, not just as welfare policies or aid or something that we may grant, you know, alongside sort of other policies. So the recentering of the rights um, discourse, I think, is perhaps another really important part without losing all the other points relating to the civil and political um, rights. Uh, anybody else want to come in at this point or shall we turn to questions from the audience? Um, some are beginning to um, have just come in. Um, so Eric um, Beeblehouse Brown, I think his name, um, from the University of Arkansas in the US, um, has a question for all of you. He says, you've all raised important concerns about state responses. So building on Fionola's point, can you identify more examples of effective response, particularly from a gender just perspective? Perhaps local level government or NGO led initiatives. Is Varita's example exportable? So I think he wants further details, further examples um, of what are um, important, appropriate, um, forward looking state responses and particularly from the local level as well, or NGO-led initiatives. And then Mario Gomez from the International Center for Ethnic Studies, where we all were last year, has a question particularly for Vinola, but I think perhaps the others may well, you may both have something to add on that. Um, he says that in Sri Lanka, there's been an increase in hate speech against religious minorities. Muslims in Sri Lanka have been fighting for respect for their burial rights. Is this a global trend? Are religious and ethnic minorities encountering further discrimination as a result of the pandemic? So particular issues about, um, I think it was you, Finola, who did raise the issue. And I think actually all of you touched on it about you know, which particular groups are um, most um, fiercely being attacked both by the pandemic and then as a consequence of responses to the pandemic. So I think sort of building upon that um, idea, perhaps um, particularly issues around other minorities in both Uganda and Colombia would be interesting. So two questions there relating to state and local responses and particular issues around um, religious and ethnic minorities and discrimination against them um, being highlighted because of the pandemic. Who'd like to start? Um, 
I asked Camilo a moment ago, so perhaps Fanola, would you this time? <laughs> sure. Um, I, I guess I, what I would just to answer Eric's first question about sort of good examples, and I think that's also one of the things we have to elevate, which is often hard because we're living in a universe of imperfect information. But I do think we have a lot to learn from the environmental movement and the way in which we've sort of crafted the idea that city-led, regional, when we have an absence of a concerted global capacity and global capacity has obvious fault lines around state power and sovereignty, that one of the really innovative places to go is actually to look for these sort of multi-layered legal and political responses. So uh, Colombia is, I think, uh, Bogota, Colombia is an interesting one because we have actually very different city models in Colombia. We have a really good example in, in Bogota, but I, should I say a more complex example in Medellin? So it, it's not even within countries, we're seeing enormous yeah. variation. And I think the other thing I think which is really exciting, and this is in the most difficult circumstances, we're seeing amazing litigation. I mean, there's, I'm going to take the example example of Botswana, where um, when the uh, legislation, COVID legislation came out in Botswana, it turned out that lawyers weren't considered essential workers. So I'm biased, of course, I think we all, all the lawyers (laughs) think they're special. But I will say that one of the immediate things that the Lawyer Bar Association did was they went to court and said, of course, lawyers are essential workers. How are we going to have justice systems and accountability by the state unless we consider lawyers essential workers? So I also think elevating these stories of of disputing, claiming, agitating against the state are really important. And it's interesting to me that we're seeing much less Um, I I know less about where we see that kind of proactive work being done on women's rights. I see negative. So if we think of the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last week, which essentially says that women, um, the burden on women to seek abortions and seek abortion care uh, is going to be heavier, actually, during the pandemic. It's going to require them to show up in person. So again, sort of looking at where we we have had wins, but also where states are using the um, the moment to really limit women's rights. And I'm going to share in the chat, my colleagues at the United Nations today have issued a, 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 a press statement exactly on the issue Mario has identified, which is that compulsory cremation is a violation of the most fundamental right to belief. And, and Bear in mind the right to religious belief is an absolute right. It's a, it's a, it's a right that's particularly protected under international law. And here we see a, a really what can only be described as a discriminatory model uh, focused on a vulnerable marginal minority, which has already been subject of significant repression by a country. And to affirm, Mario, that is not unusual. The patterns of that across the globe are numerous and regrettable. Thank you. Um, Jasmine, anything to add to either of those questions? There is is, um, difficulty actually in getting or looking at uh, good models uh, in a situation of extreme fear, extreme repression. At at the beginning of of the pandemic in Uganda, uh, the first month, uh, this, the first and second month of, of the lockdown, there was some kind of uh, optimism uh, where uh, we saw a, a sort of um, combined 
efforts uh, between government, civil society, religious leaders, educational institutions. There was a lot of donation that happened in order to deal with the uh, uh, disadvantaged, a uh, lot of food that was donated. But quickly, people realized that uh, that intersection was not going to live for long because then quickly it was realized that the, the issues, uh, the, the, the notions and all that were not actually being put, uh, put to good use. So I'm saying that at one point, that intersection that had happened uh, could be a good model for a country that is struggling with a healthcare system, uh, water provisioning, and so on, if those things can actually be put uh, to good use. I, I think that's um, all I wanted to um, comment on that. Thank you. Camila. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> to go back to, to uh, local responses, I, I think there are some that are good ideas that we need just, uh, of course, I don't know if they're, uh, um, they're good models for everyone and, and, you know, how, you know, different societies need to reflect on if they want to take part of, of, to, of them or not. But um, I think one good one was uh, this partnership between the mayor's office and convenience stores and pharmacies um, to use them as sites for reporting domestic violence, you know, because those are where the, the only or two uh, places where many of these victims uh, went to during the lockdown, right? To the convenience store to, to buy, you know, uh, groceries or a pharmacy to get uh, medications and how they turn that into reporting, secure reporting sites. So then uh, public authorities could uh, get to know what was going to, what, what, was, go what was happening and then respond uh, to that. So I think that was a, a, clever, a very brilliant uh, move uh, by the mayor's office. Um, a second example, I think, is the discussion that was triggered in Colombia, um, given the initial, um, initially the government decided or, or made, made a statement saying that migrants and, and mostly Venezuelan migrants were not going to be vaccinated. Um, in Colombia, no, nobody's getting vaccines because vaccines have, have not arrived uh, yet. But he said, once we get them, uh, we're gonna vaccinate Colombians and not uh, irregular migrants. And that triggered a discussion on different issues, you know, from um, 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 ethical human rights perspective to a health, uh, and security perspective saying that, you know, it's either we all get vaccinated or it, it will not work. You know, it doesn't work that way. You know, you hate uh, and your idea of dividing us uh, by borders is completely nuts when it comes to uh, a health threat. So I think those, and, and now they backtrack that and change their mind and, and, and kind of uh, human rights, ethics and health triumph uh, that idea. So those are, uh, I think, um, good examples of, of positive developments, I would say, that might be replicated um, somewhere else. Regarding particular groups that um, I consider have been um, um, severely hit on are those who are in the risk of being left behind. I would um, echo what Fayanula mentioned um, moments ago, which 
once are the groups that we are now seeing in the surface of this and, you know, um, informal workers, uh, minorities, but there's also a group of the invisible, those who uh, have been fighting, you know, for the rights of other people, social leaders, human rights defenders, that now are just, just part of a background uh, and a background that nobody wants to touch and people are, are busy on other staff and they're just there as invisible uh, um, victims of this. And, uh, and I would um, reiterate that call for not letting those um, uh, behind. No, I think that's a really important point. And I think both of your points have also added another dimension to the whole concept of prohibition of discrimination. Uh, and sort of thinking about what do we really mean about by discriminatory practices and the requirement to prohibit discrimination in this sort of new context, which I think is really important. And um, there's another question that's come in that really relates, I think, very much um, or builds on the question that we've just had um, from Mario, which is a question from India. Um, the person says it's for all speakers. And the questioner says, we've seen a rise in India in child marriage, um, as well as violence against women. Do the panelists have information about other um, traditional practices, customs that are oppressive, particularly oppressive to women that have come to the fore during the pandemic and any particular information about those? And further, the question, uh, the question goes on, any um, particular points that anybody can raise relating to women's mental health and the whole mental health aspects um, of the pandemic. And then we have another one from Freya Scharlmann, if I'm pronouncing that right, from Germany, who's building upon um, your remark, Camilio, on business as usual. And um, she says that this has been a worrying trend all over the world. On the local level, we see the pandemic increasing solidarity. On the global level, this solidarity is lacking. How can the increased securitization and militarization be channeled to increase the security of women? I think that's actually really two separate questions. One is how do we build? I think um, Pinola already touched on this, but how can we build some global solidarity and leadership? But then can increased securitization and militarization be channeled to increase the security of women? Or is that a complete um, contradiction in terms? Um, who would like to go first? Um, I think I've asked all of you in turn. Um, so perhaps Josephine. The, the, the issue about um, increased child marriage, actually we had um, appalling statistics on, on uh, teenage pregnancies in this very uh, period. Uh, so these are not because of COVID, but a result of the broader uh, social dislocation uh, where people even abuse power in, uh, within their vicinity. And so uh, I think the, the issue is how shall women's rights organizations or civil society organizations reimagine themselves to actually um, uh, engage with the new realities uh, of this open lead that has actually shown us uh, all the deficiencies within our, our kind of uh, system. Uh, the, the issue around um, women's unemployment, 
Uh, this is not really uniform across the uh, all classes. For some women, uh, the pandemic enabled them to expand on the, the, the businesses that they are doing. Um, businesses around food, businesses around uh, uh, small uh, kinds of uh, provisioning, uh, mobile um, provisioning, all these, some of these things have ex expanded and therefore not all women are in the victim uh, kind of, 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 of class. Uh, but generally, uh, we see that there is a slump. There is uh, a lot of difficulty in uh, people who uh, depend on the, the services that were locked down or because of the slowdown, there isn't uh, that much that is happening. So definitely poverty levels have gone up and uh, women uh, also tend to be a majority in that uh, kind of, of class. And uh, for us, uh, we also have the, the urban um, rural uh, dichotomy, whereas the rural um, populations were not really like locked down uh, because they were allowed to continue with their agricultural activities. They are in the backwaters because now all the other services that require um, cash income have gone up. And therefore then you see that um, to access health uh, for women who, uh, who have to access health for themselves, for their children, for their spouses, all that is, is, is combining to actually make uh, the life uh, a little bit more complex. That's what I can um, put for now, thanks. Thank you, Josephine. Uh, Camille, any thoughts on either yes. of those? Um, I, I would like, uh, I don't know about traditional practices, but uh, I would like to say a few words on mental health. Yeah. Um, and, and I think um, mental health, at least in Latin America or largely in Latin America is uh, an issue we don't um, talk about. Uh, it is, uh, you know, in this um, macho kind of culture, you know, it's a, a, a sign of weak, weakness. Uh, so the, this this idea of you know uh, getting services for mental health are related issues or talking about that is just um, not part of our traditional conversations. So I see as a positive uh, development that people are talking more about this and are bringing this to the table and and asking uh, hard conversations about um, and hard questions about um, how this impacts. Um, life in households, uh, in public spheres, uh, and how to craft policies to in order to achieve that. And I see that here we can, for example, countries like Chile, Colombia, Argentina, that have built and they have hard win lessons on how to deal with direct tra trauma, vicarious trauma, because of, of the, the harms inflicted to victims of violence, of conflict violence. And, you know, all of what we've learned there 
uh, that has not transpired society. And, you know, largest uh, sectors of population don't know uh, about how we have dealt with that and uh, created uh, these systems in order to cope with uh, a lot of that can now be, you know, used by uh, larger parts of the population that are trying to seek for answers and, uh, and, and ways to cope with uh, what they're dealing uh, these days. So I think there is a, an important um, opportunity to connect those 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 parts, not only to to share those uh, experiences, but also to to show society how important uh, to build that is, and to maintain and sustain those systems uh, moving forward. Um, and and again, in regarding global solidarity and security and, and, and women's security, uh, I will call again to um, to look um, at how you know this sort of of female leadership has been shaping some of these uh, agendas and, and moving from the idea of, of, of security seen, seen in an unidimensional way to include uh, discussions regarding care, discussions regarding human security, discussions regarding uh, community and how different members of the community need to be, you know, um, uh, invited to be part of these conversations and how that important is for you know having efficiency efficient uh uh systems to to combat threats uh different sorts of threats uh, i think that's important moving forward um both at the local and national level but also uh globally thank you Antonella. well i just would say briefly i think that you know solidarity is an enormously evocative word and there's a way in which we could develop new vocabularies of uh, transformation and and solidarity and connectivity and I think one of the challenges is that that those vocabularies and the kind of capacities they invoke are really being squeezed out by the dominant discussions which is around securitization militarization management models um, and here in particularly I would just stress the extent to which you know, and I think this is a real challenge for the women, peace and security agenda is that, in fact, the ways in which the infrastructures of security are now being redeployed to do essentially the expansion of that into COVID-19 management across multiple states, I think is a really insidious creep. It's not one that's informed by the kind of principles of gender justice or women's engagement. And I think that speaks to a more profound sort of reckoning for the women, peace and security agenda is exactly what agenda are you maintaining and supporting in these spaces and whether or not you really should be in that space. So I have some real deep concerns about that, um, that um, to use, I think, a phrase you coined, Christine, um, uh, uh, we become a decorative fringe on the edge of a table somewhere. So it's maybe time that we got off the table and set up our own space. So I think really profound questions of strategy, where we are, who who do we want to be aligned with in the transformative moment? Do we try to change other people's agendas or is this a moment of really significant stepping back and reassessing and resetting different kinds of agendas? Which I think we're coming very much yeah, to, um, out of time. And I think that that leads on to another question that we have here. So I'll put it to all of you and say, you know, can you just take a final to think about this last question and then perhaps just any other final comments that you'd like to make um, before we wrap up. This comes from Ruth, Ruth Wig, I think, 
from the United States. And she says, do you think there are going to be adverse issues that cannot be erased after the pandemic? What policies do you think we should start with for inclusive rebuilding? So the looking to the future. And as I say, I think that picks up very nicely from where you just left off a moment ago, Finola. So any sort of priorities you think of for rebuilding for the future? Um, concerns, again, I think you've all raised already about what we might be left with that cannot be so easily erased and perhaps any final thoughts. So again, um, Camille, I'll start with you this time, then go to Vanula and then finish with Josephine. I'm a very optimistic kind of guy. So <laughs> I'll tell you that, <laughs> so I'll tell you that um, there's a lot of challenges. Uh, and, and, and I, I think this definitely will, will break history, at least recent history, um, into two, because um, I think at least speaking from, uh, from my, for my region and, and for Colombia, I think um, the work ahead is um, challenging and will take us um, a lot of time to, to, to say that we are, that we've overcome uh, this uh, threat. Uh, but I don't think that there are necessarily things that are going to do be meant to stick. It is if we let them stick around that there are going to be, you know, these unsurmountable uh, challenges or, or, or stains in, in our history. Um, I think reconstru reconstruction needs to be inclusive if it's going to work. Otherwise, um, I, I don't think that, that that's going to cut it. Second, as I mentioned, at least in our region, um, we have a new citizen, uh, citizen demands that, that are still there and people are still going and, and finding more creative ways in order to go to the street and protest and fight for their rights. So I, I, I don't think uh, they're going just to let that, uh, um, um, some of these policies just get away with uh, going back to business as, as usual and, and curtailing the rights of those that's been um, oppressed. So um, what I see is that there's going to be a, a, a very important round of renegotiations, uh, both in pu public and private space. And what I think is that we need to start having those conversations on how to make it more inclusive, starting with vaccine policies and, and you know, global vaccinations. If you look right now at the map of how vaccines are, are being, you know, um, delivered and, and, and all of the doses, you see a, a very frightened uh, picture of the world uh, with a huge divide south uh, north hemispheres uh, in terms of that. So I think uh, starting with that, there are many conversations that we need to, uh, to get uh, ongoing. And, 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 and I'm happy that we are uh, providing some platform to start with, with those. Thank you. Thank you very much. Finola. Uh, so briefly, the adverse issues that I think we will really have to reckon with. Well, I've, I mean, I'm a one, I'm a one line securitization, <laughs> I think is going to be an enormous. But the other thing I think we haven't talked about is technologies. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we're seeing right now, I think, is the enormous adaption and particularly data collection, data use, data storage, the ways in which that has massive impacts on privacy, on the regulation of women's lives, on ways in which actually data itself and, and 
is algorithmically structured to discriminate and uh, both in racial and gender terms. So the actual the construction of of uh, of new technologies and the ways in which they have been harnessed during COVID and the ways in which that may become hardwired. I think that's an enormous adverse piece that we have not reckoned with, and not least because people are downloading apps and giving away all their information happily because they're afraid. So that actually is this complex space of yeah. where the, it's not about the state taking, it's about individuals giving with limited understanding about the long-term implications of of privacy as a gateway right to other rights and the ways in which that can be exploited by the states by states and 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 how do we do it better i think we have to we we are still as a women's rights movement we have to be against we have to go back to our roots we have to be against the militarization and securitization that has never served women's interests well and that is i think where we start and we go back to ground principles these aren't new ideas we just reinvigorate our engagement and or and the necessity of them in this moment um and that that that's what I would say. Thank you. And Josephine, final word. Thank you very much. Um, what shall we be left with? Uh, I was uh, reflecting on that. And um, sitting on the African continent, uh, uh, broadly known as the Global South, there's something that has happened uh, in terms of um, uh, the sort of relative delegitimation of the orthodoxy of neoliberalism. Uh, that is one, but also the fact that each country is struggling. There isn't space for, for hegemonic kind of discourses uh, across countries. And this could be an opportunity um, for Africa to sort of uh, also be able to identify um, solutions uh, to uh, its kind of, of, of challenges. We saw this uh, during the pandemic, uh, during the lockdown, uh, the heavy lockdown. Uh, we had uh, universities on the African continent coming together, having several webinars in terms of uh, technological advancement, in terms of social responses and so on. And I think that if that could actually uh, be allowed to fruit, uh, we could begin to see a new kind of um, uh, power shift uh, in terms of, of the, the, the sort of African identity and also uh, in terms of the neoliberal orthodoxy in economic policies, social policies and, and governance. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you all very much. We are out of time. Um, I'm sorry for people who'd sent in other questions that we haven't yet had been able um, to get to. Um, I've been asked to tell the audience that there are two other public events um, as part of the Hub Convention during this week. The next one is on the 27th of January at four o'clock um, London time. And this will be discussing COVID-19, the land policy of Sierra Leone and the implications for gender justice and livelihood. And um, other information about the Hub activities will be found on the Hub website and um, that, that has been posted on the chat function. 
So all that remains for me to do is to thank the speakers very much indeed um, from across their different time zones and different times of day, but for their extremely um, well thought through, informative, and I think optimistic remarks in many <laughs> cases as well. So thank you all three very much indeed. Um, also thank you of course to the audience and for the participation and for the team at the LSE who've made the technology and so on possible. And for all other hub members, I hope the rest of the convention um, goes as excellently as this one has. And so I will now close the event. Thank you all very much indeed.